United Soccer Coaches is proud to bring you the weekly United Soccer Coaches podcast, covering all aspects and all levels of the game we love. The United Soccer Coaches podcast is presented by Team Snap and hosted by veteran soccer announcer Dean Linky, the longtime television and podcast voice of the association. Now, here's Dean with this week's show. I am Dean Linky, grateful for each and every one of you for listening to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Team Snap. Feel like we got another big time show this week. Hope you feel the same way. We'll kick off with 2012 U.S. Soccer Hall of Famer Desmond Armstrong. He was on the 1988 U.S. Olympic team. He was on the 1990 U.S. World Cup team. And he was the last cut, the last cut for the 1994 U.S. World Cup team. He's got a story to tell as a proud black man, father of seven, beautiful wife, beautiful family, and he wants to keep the dialogue going. So we're going to do that in two parts because he has so much to say. I mean, he has a lot to say, a lot of good stories about what it was like living in his skin, trying to make the national team, Signing a contract. Good stories, folks. And more to come next week as well. Next week, he'll get into what it was like to be the last cut and what he learned about even if you're not in love with your coach, you've got to make sure you still show that respect. Fascinating guy, Desmond Armstrong. Always walked his own walk. He was the first U.S. soccer player that I interviewed as a lowly little intern way back in 1989 and we've stayed in touch ever since and now more than ever with some of his kids marching in protest of the George Floyd death we needed to hear his voice so Desmond Armstrong kicks it off then we continue our Big Ten and Ten this time with Tim Lenahan and the Northwestern Wildcats I think Tim Lenahan is just an outstanding coach what he's done at Northwestern, amazing. couple elite eight appearances, the Big Ten double, a lot of big wins. Tim Lenahan's joined by Tyler Miller, who at the time of this recording is still in the MLS back tournament, getting it done in goal for Minnesota. Tyler Miller and Tim Lenahan of Northwestern. And then two more members of our 30 under 30 class, Alexia Poon and Jason Orban. That's our show, and we start after this message from Team Snap. Does managing your club or league feel like a second job? If so, you might need some help. With Team Snap, you can get it. Their customers save up to 15 hours each week on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Plus, everything you need is online, which means no more trips to the bank, no more lost checks, and no more colossal spreadsheets. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap. Go to teamsnap.com slash NSCAA1. I am Dean Linky, and it really is a great honor to kick off this week's show with Desmond Armstrong. He is a U.S. Soccer Hall of Famer. He played in the 1990 World Cup. He is a proud man. He is a proud black man. And he was the first U.S. soccer athlete that I was able to meet and write a story about during my internship with U.S. soccer, which obviously then led me to being with the women in 91, the Olympic team in 92, and then Desmond for several years leading up to the 94 World Cup. I remember sitting with Desmond. I remember writing stories about Desmond and his love for art. And I remember more than anything 
just how impressive this young man is and how much time he had for just a little sophomore out of Ohio University in Athens. Because of that, Desmond and I have created this ability to not talk for several years and pick it right up as if we were back in Colorado Springs, sitting in the conference room doing that story. Desmond, tell me if you remember that first interaction, because I remember it like it was yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I remember it. I was like, who is this guy? I was like, what does he want? He wants to interview me about what? You know, and uh, we were growing as a soccer nation, obviously, uh, in regards to the exposure of the sport, that we did have individuals like yourself, young green guys coming in and cutting their teeth on our national theme, an emerging sport, and just really an enthusiast for the sport and its growth. So I was really honored that um, you had the desire to really not so much choose me, but select me as one of the guys that you were going to do story on as you started to build your career. So great honor. It's great to catch up with you again. And like you said, you know, it's just like, hey, we were we're back in the room. <laughs> we're back just hanging out and talking. So I'm I'm very pleased to partake of this opportunity. We had some honest dialogue about that first meeting and, and how I was raised. Um, I was raised in northwest Ohio where, upon reflection, I realized I didn't see a whole lot of people of color, but I was also raised to not see people for their color. So that was good. So when I'm interacting with you, I truly feel like I was like interacting with anybody. It didn't matter. Yet I understand from you growing up as a black man, you had to be skeptical at times, right? Like it was just part of the nature. I mean, it was one of those things where you even opened up about how your dad sat down with you and said, hey, this is what you got to be ready for. And I admitted to you that I feel naive because of that. I feel good because I always judge people the same, but I also feel naive because I didn't understand the struggles that black people go through. And for, for me, Desmond, that's opened my eyes. When you hear someone like me who's in the media say that and want to try to make a difference, I'm not looking for a pat on the back. I'm just looking more for keeping the discussion going. How does it make you feel? Yeah, that's a very good point. You coming from Northwestern Ohio and, and my experience as a professional, my very first professional team was playing for the Cleveland Force. And I'm from Washington, D.C., but more importantly, I grew up in an area just outside of D.C. in my high school years in Columbia, Maryland. And Columbia, Maryland was a planned community. started back in 1967 by the Rouse Company, and the intent was to build sort of, if you will, to borrow a term, a better society, a better community in which black and white, rich and poor lived side by side in a village context. And there were 11 villages, and each of the villages was self-contained. And so we were somewhat insulated in our existence. And so my perspective and, and, and lens that I saw the world through was both having moved from Wheaton, Maryland, again, just on the outskirts of Washington, D.C., to that of Columbia, Maryland, and Wheaton, Maryland, where we moved. As a black person, we were the first family, and this is the mid-70s, we were the first black family to ever move into that all-white community. So to have lived there for a number of years before I moved to Columbia, which was all-encompassing, meaning we treated each other like, like you described. Hey, I see John as John. I don't see John as a white guy. I see uh, Susie 
as Susie, but I don't see Susie as a white girl. They see me, Desmond, as Desmond and not me as a black guy. Uh, we were somewhat insulated, and so from there to move to Cleveland, Ohio, and we're talking about Cleveland, Ohio in the late 80s, was a huge contrast in terms of the way that I was received, the way that I was projected in the papers, and ultimately it was sort of a reawakening, if you will, or a reintroduction to what broader American society really reflected. So for you and I to have sat down and talked, you know, openly, yeah, you were you were somewhat insulated in your own regard to your upbringing, and you were seeing people for people, which was an honest conversation we were having, but the skepticism that I held at that time was relative to the way that I was, again, perceived, treated, projected out in the media, especially in Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio, and then to a broader extent all across America being a black guy who played soccer of all sports. I should have been playing as I was told, <laughs> I should have, been, should have been playing basketball, I should have been running track, and I should have been playing American football. So when you started to notice this contrasting approach to you, did you have any dialogue with your mom or dad, or was there any pre-dialogue beforehand? You know, hey, when you leave this area, this is what you need to be aware of? Yeah. As a matter of fact, my folks who were educators, they worked in the um, D.C. public school system. They went off to get their master's at GW University, and then my mom got her doctorate at Johns Hopkins. And so my mother more so than my father was trying to open my eyes because, again, we were living in this sort of insulated community of Columbia, Maryland. Black and white wasn't an issue. It really wasn't. Everybody genuinely liked each other, loved each other. If you will, the proverbial kumbaya, that's what we were doing. And so my mother wanted to make sure that I could open my eyes. I was so idealistic, so trusting of people that my mother was, was really fearful for me going into the broader society without a proper perspective to say, hey, everybody doesn't see the world the way you see it. Everybody's not going to treat you the way that you might treat them or approach them. So be aware of that. And so as as time went, especially my two years in Cleveland, Ohio, I started to see the reality of some of the things that she had shared with me that they both had shared with me prior to going, to leaving the D.C., Virginia, Maryland area. Then my skepticism started to sort of sink in to the realities of things, just the realities, not to dislike people, but to be somewhat more guarded, even though at the heart of it, I was always an optimistic kind of guy. I was always sort of, hey, you know, the world is great and people are great. Maybe they're having a bad day, <laughs> you know, sort of like that. <laughs> to changing to, wow, my mother was right. I mean, this is really how they feel. They don't really know me, but they have this perception of me because of the skin that I have as opposed to the person that I might be. Now, admittedly, I told you that, and I think it was because I was so busy and so involved with my job and so excited about hanging around elite athletes like you and John Hartz and Alexi Lawless and Eric Lenalda that we're out in California, and the Rodney King riots happened, and you actually were going up to California, I believe, to spend time up there. I think you told me, right, Desmond? Yeah, um, yeah. Yep. Yeah, and so I feel like that blew by me as a 22-year-old, unaware of what's going on around me because I was just consumed with trying to make everybody happy and, and make myself happy. So here you saw that, and now... Fast forward, you know, 25, 26 years, and we have three, four, five incidents that are, uh, 
I mean, they just break your heart. So reflecting on Rodney King and then knowing that 26 years later we still have the same problems and then seeing the beacon of power in John Lewis pass away not that long ago who just looked like a giant when he was standing on that Black Lives Matter street leading up to the White House. Just a giant, even though he's only five foot six. It's kind of three questions in one, Desmond, but kind of just walk me through what you remember about Rodney King and how you're feeling about the fact that this is still going on, still going on today. Yeah, I mean, it sparked, obviously, with the death of George Floyd in regards to just watching the video of him, you know, being pinned down on the ground for four police officers and the one that had his knee on his neck. And the, and, and the really shocking context of that particular image was the fact that as he had his knee on his neck, he had his hand in his pocket. Like like it was like, like a casual, to him it, it appeared as though it, it was just a casual day at the office. I got my knee on somebody's neck, and yeah, he's saying something, but I'm, I'm really not cognizant of trying to listen to what he's saying. I've got my hands in my pocket like it's some casual act, and subsequently he, he dies. And so the reflection of that, when we were out in California, Back in 92, we had moved out there, I think January of 92, in preparation for the 1994 World Cup, of which the USA was hosting. And uh, Rodney King writes, and, and really in 92 was the verdict that was coming out, the verdict and the aftermath of the verdict of all of those officers, similar to George Floyd, in that there are four officers, all of them were you know, acquitted. They were not charged with uh, the beating of Rodney King, of which we saw for the first time in, in video. Then you, you trail back to, you know, there's no difference in what happened to George Floyd to that of Rodney King to then you talk about John Lewis and all the things, you know, and Selma getting his, his head cracked. I mean, it's on video. I mean, it's on film. Back then, black and white, but have things actually changed from that point of John Lewis's life to today, uh, George Floyd? The only thing that's, that's changed is the exposure of it. You clicked off about possibly three, four, five deaths in the last, say, three years, if you will. You referenced it to say that now we're, we're more aware of it and the broader society is more aware of it, but we in the black community have known for years that this type of thing has occurred. It's just that it's more exposed now. And I'm encouraged by the fact that the exposure of it has moved people, just like the footage back in the 60s when John Lewis was walking, the footage of that going national moved people internally first. You start to not internalize it, but you start to look inward to say, where do I stand with this? What are my feelings towards this? How does this affect me? So in a broader sense, everybody goes to the same thing. Black people were thinking the same thing. They internalize it from the perspective of, inwardly looking, how is this affecting me? And now what do I have to do? From a black person's perspective, it is what do I have to do? I'm already aware of all of this, so what do I have to do relative to my interaction in broader society? Now broader society is exposed to it. They have to look at themselves individually and say, what do I do as it pertains to what I've been exposed to, what I've seen? How is that affecting me? And now how is that effect on me going to operate outwardly. And so what you're seeing now from an encouraging perspective is the masses of people that are hitting the streets and demanding 
a change in our broader society. And we're talking about kids that are black, white, Hispanic. I saw a clip the other day where they're, they're a group of Hispanic women walking around with signs that say Black Lives Matter. And let me just say this, in, in the context of Black Lives Matter, you know, the argument has come to say, yeah, all lives matter. Why can't we say all lives matter? White lives matter, blue lives matter. All of that is true. We're working from the premise in terms of the psyche and the awareness now, the exposure of these lives being snuffed out and now being shown on videos globally that, yes, because all lives matter, this life right here that you just viewed that was just snuffed out on your, your smartphones or on your nightly news or whatever, your Snapchat, that life mattered and it happened to have been black. And because all lives matter, that life right there mattered. And so, because that, that life right there happened to be of a black man, the mantra of Black Lives Matter is only echoing the universal truth of all lives matter. It's not discarding it, it's not pushing it aside, it's not minimizing it. It is magnifying the fact that all lives matter when people are marching to say that because all lives matter, black lives matter. And so I wanted to make that point relative to what some of the dialogue has been to bring us to a better society, to bring us to a, a better understanding of what the imagery might be saying or trying to say relative to our society, meaning we as Americans living together in some sense of respect and harmony as we move forward. And I'm saying, I'm saying that in a hopeful manner because, yeah, there are quite a few things that have not changed since, you know, since the, 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 the 50s to the early 60s, all, all the way through the 60s to the early 70s by way of, yeah, you know, we've got some, some opportunities that have opened up by way of the civil rights movement. The Voting Rights Act has changed our lives and definitely changed mine. I'm 55, so my life is a reflection of everything that has occurred since that time of the 1960s, uh, 68 and forward to the extent that my family was able to move into an all-white community, the very first black family to move into an all-white community, and thus there I was introduced to the sport of soccer. Prior to moving to that community, man, I'm talking about we moved from the city of D.C. I'm talking about, you know, southeast D.C. We moved from there to an all-white community. We didn't know anything about no soccer. Soccer? You know, soccer, no. I played basketball. I played American football. I ran track. I actually played tennis because my father, who worked in the um, Parks and Recreation Department as an educator, offered tennis as a summer activity. So I learned how to play tennis before I learned anything about soccer. I mean, tennis could have been and was considered a, a white boy sport. How much more is, <laughs> was soccer a white boy sport when I moved from an all-black community to an all-white community? And again, and that was indicative of all of the sacrifices and all of the lives that were sacrificed late 50s throughout the 60s to afford my family a chance to move into a different community, a broader community than just all black. And so moving forward again to 55 years of my life, of uh, then moving to a Columbia, Maryland, where white and black lived side by side, went to school together, you know, married. We had the highest ratio of interracial couples in America at the time of the early 
early 80s in Columbia, Maryland. My friends were black and white. It was a black-white community. There were not a lot of Hispanics. There were very few South Koreans that came into that community. But we all, you know, we lived in a, a semblance of insulated harmony. And then it helped to shape my worldview as I went forward as I mentioned before, of living in Cleveland, Ohio, and then going with the national team to, to see the world. Incidentally, you know, I just want to hit this, that that experience of me moving to an all-white community, being introduced to the sport of soccer for the very first time, man, two years later, I'm on a plane with my soccer team going to England, going across the pond to England. First time I was ever on a plane and flew over, because of soccer, flew over to England and went into a small town called Sutton, England, and Cambridge, the area of Cambridge, England. You want to talk about, we stayed for two weeks. We lived with the families of the, of the team that was hosting us. And you want to talk about an eye-opener to the, to the world and also, again, an eye-opener to how, especially back then, we're talking about mid-70s, dude, how black people were viewed in England. <laughs> you know, <laughs> in England. Uh, Funny story, I mean, when we got off the, off the bus, each family would listen for the name of the person that they were going to host. So two or three players go out uh, before I get off the bus, and they're all excited to get their American to come into their house. And then I come off the bus, and the whole little town went silent. Because everybody, everybody was asking each other, like, who gets him? <laughs> And so I'm talking about it was a small town. Sutton is a very small town in Cambridge, England. And so um, I ended up going with this family. Their last name was the Murphys. And uh, they had three kids. They had two boys and a, and a girl. And they were all named with Ds. It was, it was Dale, Darren, Donna. And then I came in as Desmond. So we, we all became, we, we became the four Ds. And so they... You know, they, they took me in, and it was a great experience. It was, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, it was awkward at first, of course, but it was, it was a wonderful experience. Opened my eyes to a broader world beyond the United States. And so the exchange there is something that I carry with me throughout my life. And it inspired me to want to, you know, pursue professional soccer. One, because I was in the country of England that, you know, soccer was, was king culturally. Two, because of the experience that I had in a different country. And then, you know, three, uh, a broader perspective on my worldview. It had expanded, obviously. And then coming back into the States and seeing the contrast between uh, an American culture to that of an English culture, all the while living in a community where we are the only black family, the first and only black family to live in that community. It was really, really eye-opening. Again, I carry it with me, and even as I approach coaching long after my playing career, I look at soccer as a, as a vehicle to, to use in the form of uniting people, you know, seeing the similarities and also the differences of our cultures. Soccer gives us a, a great opportunity, has given me a great opportunity to see that, to see the commonalities of, you know, people all over the globe, as well as the cultural differences, but it, it doesn't change the fact that we're all, we're all human beings, even with our differences. Even with our cultural differences, we are all human beings living this life out together in community. It's the truth. We, we are living this life out in community. I bring my, my idiosyncrasies, my cultural backgrounds, my life experiences at 55 to the table 
when I sit with you, Dean, or someone else, and then we get a chance to, as we do life together in community, we get a chance to share, share our differences, share our similarities, and then learn, we can have the opportunity to learn to respect each other relative to our differences as well as our commonalities. You know, you have a family, you, you have a desire for your kids, your wife, your kids. You want to provide for them the best opportunity for them to be whoever they're supposed to be, whoever God has designed them to be. Your desire is the same as mine with my kids. Look, I want to provide them the best opportunity to be whoever they're supposed to be according to how God has designed them, quite simply. And I think the same thing holds true for every parent globally. Same desire that, look, we're just trying to give the best to our kids and we're trying to live the best in community and, and, it, and it is we can say this today it's, it, it really is reflective of a global community I mean we're able to get on these phones these tablets these apps and connect globally whereas and I, I'm showing my age of course but shoot I grew up dude with a, uh, a rotary phone <laughs> you know anybody know what that, what that is I grew up with a rotary phone man come on and then it went to a push-button phone that was in the house, stationary, in the kitchen. I couldn't get to the phone. I couldn't call anybody unless I went to the kitchen and pushed those buttons. To today, where, I mean, shoot, I got this app on my phone, dude, and I can talk to my boys up in South Africa. I can talk to my, my people over in Germany, down in uh, Sao Paulo, or Rio, uh, Brazil. I can get to them. It is truly a, a global community. Well, and you mentioned human beings, and you created a lot of human beings with your beautiful, beautiful lives. <laughs> um, you have three boys and four daughters and now two grandchildren. And, Desmond, you shared with me that your daughter called you and said, hey, I'm marching in protest of the George Floyd incident. And you stopped very calmly and said, okay, you know, you have that right, but... Why are you marching? What is your purpose? Why did you want to do that, and what did you get out of that conversation with her? Yeah, I wanted to encourage her because, again, we, everybody saw those videos, and and across the country and then the globe, there was this emphasis to, to go out and do something about it. And I know, that, I know the draw. So for her, and my other daughter was there as well. My other daughter went with her and their friends. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm in support of, of marching. But let's understand, first, you must understand why you're marching. And then, more importantly, who are you marching with? Like, who are the leaders of this protest and this movement? Now, I, I think there's a separation, and I, I came to know this after the fact because I was like, yeah, okay, it's Black Lives Matter. Of course, yes, Black Lives Matter. I'm with you. Yes, go march. I get it. But who are the leaders within the context of, the march that you went to or that they went to in, here in Nashville, they went downtown uh, Nashville, Tennessee, of all places. They're marching. And so my daughter came back and, and, and told me that she did some more investigation in regards to the organization known as Black Lives Matter, which is different than the movement in terms of how people were moved to the effect of getting into the streets to protest the death of George Floyd, the manner of which he died, and what needs to happen in this community response. That is broader than the organization of Black Lives Matter. 
Now, it's not to say that the organization of Black Lives Matter is not in locked arms with the movement that was inspired, provoked by the death of George Floyd. It just means that a lot of people that are on the streets, like my, my daughters, went out because of their response and reaction to what they saw in the death of George Floyd and did not know what the organization of Black Lives Matters represents, what they stand for, what their mission statement is, what their vision statement is, what their, what their drive is that does encompass the energy coming from not only the death of George Floyd, but others that preceded the death of a black man at the hands of the police in different cities across the United States. And so I wanted her, as well as my other kids, to really functionally understand when they step on the streets, why, they, why they're out there, and more importantly, whom they are following by way of leadership, by way of organizations that are on the streets as well, that have been moved by the witnessing of, again, the death of a black man at the hands of the police, the very police, and I'm talking nationally, because there are different police forces all across the country, but the police are there to serve and protect. And so relative to that, this is in contrast, what we've been seeing has been in contrast to what that, not mantra, but what that directive is for the police to serve and protect the society that we live in, the citizens of the society that we live in. And so, again, to my kids, I wanted them to functionally understand, one, the movement itself in its totality, but also the leadership. There are several different leadership groups organizations that are a part of joining the masses to get on the streets to protest the death of a individual at the hands of the police, in this case, black men. So we had, she went and found the information about the organization of Black Lives Matter, which is, again, a little bit different than the overall context of the movement of people being on the streets, even the most recent reports of the, the people that have been in Portland on the streets demanding change. So those people are not necessarily in Portland, are not necessarily members of the Black Lives Matters organization, but they were moved enough by the overall context of the death of a, of a citizen by the hands of police, and it happens to have been, you know, a black man. So they were on the streets, but they're not a part of the Black Lives Matters organization, even though they're out on the streets because of the Black Lives Matter movement. Desmond, if you recall, when I first introduced you, I called you a proud man, a proud black man, and I think it's more appropriate just to say a proud man, then you've always made your own decisions, and I think you continue to do that. And they've not always been, perhaps, in public view, the most popular decisions. You told me the story about negotiations with the U.S. national team. You told me discussions about Major League Soccer, and I'm hoping you're willing to, to share that on this podcast. I am wondering, upon reflection, if any of it in your decisions had to do with, hey, no one's going to take advantage of me because of the color of my skin. I'm my own man, or if it was more, I'm just my own man, white or black, and I'm going to walk the way I walk. I'm thinking maybe there's a little bit of the color of my skin in there, but I'm, I may be wrong. I want you to talk about that, though, because particularly as it relates to, you know, crossing the, the picket line or whatever with the U.S. national team, 
that was directly, I think, related to the color of your skin and how that affected maybe some future decisions in your life and how you carry yourself. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah, without question. I mean, as it pertains to the U.S. national team, it really reflects upon the time because, you know, myself and my roommate and teammate at the time, Jimmy Banks, we were the only two African-Americans, black guys that were on the team, and we have been pursuing a chance to make the U.S. national team since we were basically 15 years old when we first met. We met at a national sports festival event out in Colorado Springs, Colorado, to be exact. On my team, we played for, the, there were four regions, east, west, north, and south. And, and Jimmy played for the north, I played for the east, based off of where we came from. And uh, competed against each other, and I had a couple of other uh, black guys on my team, but they were Haitian. Uh, they were Haitian-Americans. They weren't born here in the United States. And so when G and I hooked up, he was like the only black guy on his team. We related almost instantaneously. I mean, we, again, tried to make the national team for like, in my case, it was six years to make the full national team. And by the time we made it, you know, we were, uh, we were like, about time uh, that we both made it and we became, you know, we were already friends, but we became roommates. And so we were viewed because we were the two only black guys on the team, you know, innocently, I think we were viewed as, oh, man, these guys are all about the brothers and they're only hanging out with each other because we used to come into our meals together and we leave together. We used to pretty much stay in our room and we didn't really hang out, but everybody had their cliques on the national team. The West Coast guys hung out together. The New Jersey boys hung out together. The Midwestern guys, and there was only one of them, Tripp, hung out with himself. And the black guys, the two of us, who were the only two of us, we hung out together. So as we qualified for the World Cup for the first time in 40 years in 1990, we came into our first training camp in January of 1990 in preparation for the World Cup that was going to be held in June, six months later. So in regards to that, we all with the national team were asked to sign these contracts to ensure securing our services so that guys like myself, uh, Jimmy, and a few others who, were, who had been playing indoor soccer as their profession and getting paid to do that, we were asked to sign, all of us uh, were asked to sign contracts to keep us contractually bound to the national team in that six months leading up to the World Cup. Well, again, uh, I'm showing my age, but back then, I mean, the only time that we all as a as teammates got together and talked amongst ourselves was at training camp or, you know, we would talk to each other over the phone. And I'm not talking about necessarily mobiles. I'm talking about over the phone. So we had all sort of talked on the phone prior to coming to this training camp, and we had agreed that we were not going to sign these contracts, that we were going to basically demand more money. None of us knew how much money was coming anyway, but we, we wanted more money. And um, we were going to stand up for our rights. We've been, you know, laboring ever since the Olympics in 88, which was two years prior. This time we were, we were organized, and we were going to come into this training camp in January, and we weren't going to sign these contracts. Well, for me and for Jimmy, and this is where there was a difference of, you know, realities, my agent, who was a Jewish dude, Alan Herman, he called me, and he was like, you get up there and you sign that contract, and you better tell Jimmy to sign his as well. He said clearly, he says, 
you're the only two black guys on the team, and it wouldn't take anything for these guys just to cut you, and nobody's going to bat an eye. And I was more uh, specifically for myself, I was coming off of a broken leg. I was uh, actually a, a, a year from that time I had broken my leg playing indoor soccer, so I was coming back off of recovery, and I had only played in the second-to-last game before we qualified uh, in St. Louis against, I think it was El Salvador, and that was my return game. And then the following weeks, I hurt my ankle, and I was unable to play in the game against Trinidad Tobago that helped us qualify for the World Cup in 1990. And so I was vulnerable. You know, I, was, I had not solidified. I had not gotten back to where I was. I hadn't solidified my position. And for Jimmy, Jimmy was married. And had his own, he had his own family. He had a, he had a, a son at the time. And so he could not afford not to sign the contract. He couldn't afford not to have money coming in because he had to take care of his wife and his child. And so, and again, we were both black. He <laughs> was the first black dude, man. I mean, there was no stretch of the imagination to say, U.S. soccer would cut us. Either you sign this or you, you, you're out of here. So my, my agent, again, he spoke the reality of that situation in black and white. And boom, signed the contract, handed it in, and uh, dudes on the team were like, they thought we were like traitors without really understanding it and, you know, the dynamics. They couldn't, they didn't understand it because they were not in that situation. They were not black. They couldn't understand the reality of, hey, I can get cut and ain't nobody going to say nothing about it. No one's going to say anything. No one's going to care. Uh, this is a soccer team, a U.S. soccer team, going into the World Cup. And the culture in America, nobody cares about no soccer in America. Great achievement globally, but in America, nobody cares. And more importantly, nobody cares about a black soccer player on a U.S. soccer team that's going to the World Cup for the first time in 40 years in America. So, yeah, sign the contract. And everything smooths out because, you know, six months later, Everybody's more concerned about, am I making this final roster <laughs> to get to the World Cup? <laughs> That's all anybody's caring about. Ain't nobody caring about whether you signed it before they signed it because everybody ended up signing the contract anyway because <laughs> everybody wanted to go to the World Cup. And um, so everything smoothed out. But uh, at that time, again, none of those guys could effectively relate to standing in our shoes. It had never crossed their mind. It was never going to cross their mind. They were never going to functionally understand it. And Jimmy and I understood it clearly. We signed it, boom, handed it in. Desmond, we're 30 minutes in, and we're not even close to covering all of the topics I want to cover with you. A man whose voice needs to be heard and deserves to be heard for all you've done for the game. Would you be willing to come back next week and continue this all-important discussion? Yeah, Dean, without question, whatever you need, I'll be glad to come back and finish this off and to add to what you are doing and the work that you're doing within the game of soccer. I appreciate that, and I can tell you, folks, I think you will appreciate it as well because Desmond has agreed to also talk about being the last cut right before the 1994 World Cup team. He actually is open about what he perceived as a lack of respect from him for the head coach at the time, Bora Milutinovic. He said he learned a lot from it and has grown from it. That and so many more topics as we continue the dialogue 
Desmond Armstrong today and Desmond Armstrong next week. When we return, we'll do Big Ten in 10 with Tim Lenahan and Tyler Miller getting it done in goal now for Minnesota of Major League Soccer. Tim Lenahan, I think, one of the great coaches of college soccer, what he's done at Northwestern. Being a coach means being a lot of things. Mentor, teacher, role model, motivator, leader, organizer. Of course, it's not easy to be all of those things. You need help, and who better to help you than an association of fellow coaches. Membership with United Soccer Coaches includes access to over $500 worth of e-learning courses, an improved online resource library with more than 1,000 activities, session plans and articles, $1 million worth of liability insurance, and a whole lot more. Visit unitedsoccercoaches.org join and start your free 30-day introductory membership today. United Soccer Coaches, your association for all things coaching. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. Great to kick it off with Desmond Armstrong, a member of the 1990 World Cup team, a proud black man, father of seven kids. He's done it his way, and his way has worked, and obviously had a lot to say about the current movement. Thanks, Desmond, for spending time with us. We continue to spend time with Big Ten men's soccer teams, and we'll move to the other leagues with hopes that they're going to play. We think they're going to play, and that is important. Today we spend time with Northwestern, and that's Tim Lenahan, I think one of the best coaches in the country. He doesn't get enough credit for what he's done. He came to Northwestern. They couldn't win a game against anybody. He got them rolling, started winning games in the Big Ten, including 2004 when they went into Indiana and beat an Indiana team that hadn't lost a Big Ten game. And then a couple years later, they go to the Elite Eight. They win a double. And a key part of their success along that continued run was Tyler Miller, who has been with the U.S. national team, was with LAFC last year, got a new experience now with Minnesota. At the time of this taping, he still had his team in the MLS is back tournament with a massive win for Minnesota. We hope he continues to win games and get it done. Tim Lenahan and Tyler Miller joined me and the professor, Chris Monroe, former goalkeeper at Indiana. And I started by asking Tim Lenahan, whose team started showing signs of returning to their glory days last year about the status of this year's team. Yeah, I think we have most of the core group back. A little bit of a loss in Matt Motterwell, but I think most of our guys are going to be juniors or seniors on the field. Having a veteran group makes all the difference for a program like ours that's very much a developmental program. We're a little nervous about getting all our guys. We've got a couple internationals that we're not sure they're going to get back, but we should be pretty good this year. Well, obviously, COVID's impacting all of us in a variety of ways. And speaking to that veteran leadership, how have you relied on some of those guys to help you communicate these last number of months when, quite frankly, a lot of things are up in the air? Yeah, I mean, we Zoomed four times a week during the first three months or so. so. You know, we had a leadership council that really took ownership of the whole process. They called their little groups that they supervised their quarantines. So I was really proud of the way they kind of handled that and some of the leadership they showed is during that time. As Dean mentioned, your, your win at Indiana in 2004, I think, coupled with your 2006 Elite Eight run, really 
kickstarted Northwestern international prominence and I also think was a big reason for the Big Ten becoming so competitive top to bottom from a parity perspective. You've been in the conference now for almost 20 years. Can you shed some light onto how the conference has evolved both from a parity as well as a style of play perspective? Yeah, that was a big win for us. We hadn't won a Big Ten game in seven years. Indiana had not lost a Big Ten game in nine years. So we were four wins in our first 15 years, Northwestern, in the Big Ten, to give you perspective. So from that day on, I call it the Roger Bannister moment. Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. He had the world record for like 36 days, to be honest with you. So once the barrier was broken, then it's really become a shared title with every team in the Big Ten has won either a regular season or a tournament Big Ten since then. Yeah, lots of parity. One versus eight, one versus nine now. You know, it's a tough game. The style of play obviously evolved a little bit. You know, the rugged days of the frozen tundra of the Big Ten, you know, are long gone. And, you know, there's really some quality players coming through the system. One of those quality players, Tyler Miller. Tyler, I remember being in goal with you on a special feature before that big game against Maryland. Congrats on all your success in MLS, by the way. And along the way, you've had a huge advocate in Tim Lenahan. And I'll tell you what, when you have an advocate in Tim Lenahan, you've got a great advocate, a great friend. What has he meant to you? Tim's been great. I mean, first off, just from getting me the opportunity to play at Northwestern, a prestigious university, both on the field and off the field. You really learn a lot about the, the people that he surrounds himself with. And I feel like Tim's done a great job of surrounding himself with people who are able to help players in all, all aspects of their life, whether it's professionally or academically. And I think that Tim's done a fantastic job of just bringing in good, good guys that, that really know how to build a program. Well, I think, Tyler, one thing that obviously your play on the field has been fantastic this last four or five years in MLS, but I was really impressed with your candor regarding last season in terms of going to the Gold Cup, how that impacted your rhythm and coming back into LAFC and the fact that, you know, even though in this day and age, mental health is taking more of a priority, you were open that it was difficult at times and that there were struggles to your confidence. Can you contrast what that experience was like with what it's been like coming to Minnesota and getting that new lease on life? Uh, yeah, I think it, Minnesota was kind of just a breath of fresh air for me. Uh, I mean, not to, to, to make a pun, but obviously the LA air and Minnesota, the fresh, fresh 10,000 lakes, but it really, it really weighed on me a lot coming back from that gold cup and trying to find my rhythm and, and feeling like I couldn't do it. And, and really, I kind of lost touch of, of why I want to play soccer and what it actually means to me. I mean, there were so many things going through my head and I thought that I could, could solve it on my own. And it, it really is something that's very difficult to realize when you're in the middle of it all to, to understand why you're not happy. But when I was able to remove, my, remove myself from the situation, figure it all out and refocus and Minnesota came along and they just kind of gave me that, that fresh chance. And, and sometimes that's what you need as a player. Coming into that new team, stepping into the starting role right away, can you articulate maybe how this extremely insane bubble experience has helped you assimilate, has helped you get closer with your new teammates in a way that maybe you otherwise wouldn't have? Yeah, obviously you're in a bubble, and so you get a lot of time to spend with players. Uh, you get to learn everything about them. I've been down here uh, for about 20, 23, 24 days now, and so it's just been a lot of time off the field mainly trying to to find creative ways to get through the day so it's not so monotonous really staying focused on on what our ultimate goal is down here and that's winning this 
Disney uh, tournament. Tim, we got about two minutes left. In my opinion, no one tells better stories than you. Any good Tyler Miller stories? I got a great Tyler Miller story. You know, Tyler's from the same area as me in South Jersey. His, his dad and my brother actually went to the same high school, West Catholic in Philadelphia. So we grew up in probably about 15, 20 minutes for each other. So, you know, I knew a lot about Tyler. I talked to him a lot. And then we committed to Northwestern. I remember, I think it was up at Fort Dix. I talked to him after he played. And I said, Ty, just so you know, there's two things I hate. One are freshmen and two are goalkeepers. <laughs> and you're going to be both of them. So just so you know that going in. So I think I'd shared the story with, with you guys. And when Tyler, you know, made the four saves in the, in the penalty kick shootout against Indiana the year we won the double, I think, you know, one of your colleagues asked him that question, whether it was a true story, and said, yeah, that, that's true. And he goes, well, what do you think Coach think, is thinking now? And he goes, I hope he likes me. <laughs> so, so I can tell you after those four saves, uh, I definitely was, was on the uh, Tyler bandwagon. But uh, – no, it was a special connection because we are from the same area here. You know, the fact that he came in and, in my opinion, became the best Big Ten goalkeeper in history. The surrealness, and this is an unbelievable stat, you know, we won four games in the first 15 years of Big Ten. Tyler Miller lost three Big Ten games in his four years. I mean, that's an amazing stat. And, again, we're not talking about a team full of 15 first-round draft picks either. We're talking about most teams had 15 professionals during the time. We had 15 professionals too, five doctors, five lawyers, and five investment bankers. That was who was playing in front of them for the most part. So, you know, that's my Tyler Miller story. I love it. Tyler Miller, last 10 seconds here. When you reflect on Northwestern in just one sentence, what will it mean to you? It's a family where I, I made some of my closest friends that will be lifelong friends. Great answer. Great visit with Tim Lenahan and Tyler Miller. When we return, we meet two more members of our amazing 30 under 30 class. We start with Alexia Poon and then it's Jason Orban. Looking for ways to improve your training sessions? Quick Goal has supplied the highest quality soccer goals, seating, field, and training equipment for over 30 years. From backyards to the world's greatest pitches, Quick Goal has products essential for every level of the game. As an official partner to the United Soccer Coaches and technical partner to U.S. Soccer, Quick Goal knows what equipment you need to take your game to the next level. Visit quickgoal.com to satisfy all your equipment needs. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. As you know, I love this part of the show when we get to meet two more members of our amazing 30 under 30 United Soccer Coaches class. Up next, yet another successful head coach already, Alexia Poon, who's the head coach at Sacramento City College, the Panthers. That's junior college, so she already knows they won't be playing this fall as we deal with this terrible pandemic, but hopefully you know, we can get things back to normal and get her back where she belongs on the field. Alexia, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Let's start first with how you're reacting to the fact that they've already eliminated all junior college activities. How did you take that news? It definitely was not easy news as I worked really hard during our off-season to recruit. truly feel like I had a solid team going into this fall. So it wasn't the greatest news, but I do feel like it was definitely the right decision just for the health and safety of our students and athletes and all of our staff 
So onward and upward and just have to stay positive and look forward to hopefully our spring season in 2021. Let's get to know you a little bit better. We know you're at Sacramento City College. We know you were born in Sacramento, so clearly that place is near and dear to you. But let's learn a little bit about your past. What club did you play for? Where did you go to college? When did you know you wanted to be a coach? Like, walk us through that, Alexia. Like you mentioned, I'm Born and raised in Sacramento, California. I played for a club called Boca Juniors, which is now Union FC here in Sacramento. Back in the day, we had a very solid team. I was coached by Lonnie Richardson, Gabriel Bolton, and we won the national championship two years when I was playing, so that was exciting and, you know, really set me up to get me to the four-year level on a scholarship. I ended up going to Cal State Stanislaus. I was one of those players who suffered some knee injuries early on in my youth career. So had an ACL at the age of 13, ACL at the age of 17, so right before going to college. And I kind of thought my glory days were over. So I was actually considering going the, the JUCO route until my former club coach, Gabriel Bolton, who was at California State Stanislaus University recruited me and he's like, you know what? I cannot not let you play college soccer. Like, I have to see you play. You're so good. And it was close to home. It's in Turlock, so about 90 minutes away. And I ended up at Cal State Stanislaus. The best decision I've ever made. I met my dearest and best friends there. We had a great playing career over there. We made some history, winning the CCA tournament, making the NCA tournament. Mind you, this was Division II, but it was still a very big accomplishment for the college and for me as a player. I actually suffered another ACL my senior year of college, so kept my season short. This was a period where I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with you know, my my life after soccer, I was setting myself up to go into physical therapy and taking all the prerequisites and all of that. And I had one more semester at Stanislaus, so I thought that I would join the coaching staff, coach as a student assistant. So that's where my coaching really started. Now, mind you, Throughout the course of my playing career, I was helping coaching club teams and running camps and doing things like that, but it really started at Stanislaus. So while working under Gabe, I learned a lot of things. I actually thought it was kind of stressful to be a coach, and I decided, you know, I think I want to stick to physical therapy. I think that's more my <laughs> more my uh, realm of what I want to do. So after I graduated from Stanislaus, I moved back to Sacramento, and I was working as a physical therapist aide, and former assistant coach of mine, Adrian Sorensen, who was at Delta College, reached out to me, and she's like, hey, do you want to come and be my assistant coach at Delta College? You know, we're looking for an assistant, and I was like, oh, you know, I don't think so. I think my coaching days are over, and She was very persistent, and I'm grateful that she was because I ended up coaching at Delta College, which is a junior college about 45 minutes south of Sacramento. I was working as a physical therapist aide, also working as an assistant coach, and that's when I really found my love and passion for coaching. And I think it was just building relationships with the players. And as an assistant coach, I really think you get to have – a different kind of relationship with your student-athletes because you're kind of like the good cop in a way sometimes. Players come to you when they don't want to 
talk to the head coach or however student-athletes feel like they need to talk to their coaching staff and they just don't feel, not safe, but I don't know. I was younger and I just felt like these relationships that I I was building with these student-athletes, it was just so impactful and it made me feel good every time I drove home from Stockton. So 45 minutes to Stockton, I was so excited to get to practice and then a nice, easy 45-minute drive home to just reflect and made me realize how much I loved coaching. So I decided to get my master's in kinesiology while my time at Delta College, and we had a lot of success there, and I learned a lot under Adrian Sorensen. After two and a half years, I took a leap and moved to Yuma, Arizona, and began my head coaching journey at Arizona Western College, which is in the NJCAA also junior college as well. It was a different experience, moved far away from home, had to deal with scholarship money, recruiting, which is very different from California, California JC that is. And when I was there, we had a lot of success. We were nationally ranked. I loved it. But an opportunity came up here in Sacramento, and it was one that I felt like I couldn't turn down. My family's in Sacramento. My now fiancé was living in Sacramento, so we were doing long distance for a while, and it was time for me to come home. So I applied at Sac City College, and I got the job, and here I am, back home in Sacramento and trying to get my program up and running. But now we have COVID. (laughs) Yeah, so, yeah, that's kind of my backstory. And then what uh, was your impetus for wanting to be part of this 30 under 30 class, Alexia? So I've actually applied a few years in a row. Being a female coach, I feel like I just have so much more to learn. Like there's not a ton of female coaches coaching soccer. I mean, it's definitely turning around with time, but I just wanted to find myself more as a coach and build more relationships, and I thought the 30 under 30 had great opportunity for me to continue to grow and evolve as a coach. I mean, I met some great, now I would call them friends within our program. You know, we met at the convention, and we stay in touch, and we share ideas with each other, and my mentor, Kim Sutton at Chico State, we stay in touch almost weekly, and just all of the positive things that come with 30 under 30, I just felt like I could not turn down an opportunity to apply to network, build relationships, and have opportunities to reflect and bounce ideas off of my, I guess, friends and colleagues within the coaching community. And even beyond that, like getting to know club coaches, high school coaches, it's just something that I'm very grateful for, and I'm so happy that I took the leap to apply once again. Just all of the benefits that come up 30 under 30 have helped me so much. And even during this pandemic, having my mentor and being able to talk to her because, there's, you know, there's no soccer happening right now other than soccer that we can watch. You know, I can't see my team unless it's through Zoom. So it's a difficult time for us coaches, and I'm very grateful to have this 30 under 30 opportunity to help kind of guide me through these tough times. Now, going back to your earlier comments about all those ACL injuries, bless your heart to be able to battle back to all of that. And I kind of caught on to the fact that you're in the physical therapist all the time, so I can see you saying, hey, I might want to do this before you got the coaching bug. What do you remember about what it took to battle through not one, not two, but three ACLs? I've been four. I couldn't follow all of them, but um, (laughs) how hard was that for you? 
You know, it was it was really, really, really hard. You know, my first one, I was 13, so I felt like it was easier for me to bounce back from that one. I just kind of made a change at that age to go over to the club that I, you know, kind of took me through all the way to college. And I have to say my support system has been so great growing up. My dad was always so supportive and really helped push me through and, especially during the tough times. But when I had my second ACL, I think that's when things kind of, you're at that age, I was in high school, and I know this because when I recruit, I hear it in some of my recruits' voice, like, I don't know if I want to play. And I just was feeling burnt out. I think you hit a point where you're just like, I don't know if I have the will to go through this second surgery and get back into shape, and not even just get back into shape, but get into collegiate women's soccer shape. But I think it was, to be completely honest, my former coach, Gabe Bolton, I think him having faith in me as a player and my abilities and the things that I can accomplish really helped push me to get me to where I was. I gained a lot of confidence during that time of recovering from a second UCL and seeing all of the things that I could do coming off of an injury. I just felt like the sky was the limit. So when I had my third ACL, I think, to be honest, that's a big reason why I actually got into coaching. I just felt like there was more for me to give. And if I couldn't do it as a player, I wanted to do it as a coach and teach and help our youth and be a mentor and someone who could provide guidance for other young athletes as they take on this long journey of being a student athlete and going and working on their degree. And I don't know. I really feel like the ACL is the thing that triggered me into wanting to be a big part of people's lives and it led me to coaching. This job led you back to where your fiance lives with COVID going on and everything. Have you set a date? <laughs> we set a date, but we recently postponed our wedding date. So it was supposed to be in November, but we just moved it until next year. Hopefully by then we're out of the clear and all moving forward collectively and together. I guess to end it with, finally, what does United Soccer Coaches mean to you, Alexia? Well, it means a lot. Honestly, a lot of it is just helping me continue to evolve and grow as a coach. I know I've mentioned I built some great relationships through United Soccer Coaches, and I will forever be grateful for that. I know they just announced that the convention will be not in person in 2021, which is a a bummer, but I'm definitely going to take advantage of all the opportunities that come with United Soccer Coaches. So, I just have to say I will be forever grateful to be a member, forever grateful to have an opportunity to learn and grow from some phenomenal coaches. So it means a lot to me, and I'm grateful. Alexia, thanks for sharing your story, including fighting through adversity of three ACLs and finding your way back home where your heart is. I love that story. I want to wish you all the best in your upcoming marriage and in the spring when you're back up on the soccer field. Alexia Poon, 30 under 30. Thanks for being on the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Staff. Yes, thank you for having me. And we end by meeting yet another member of the 30 Under 30 class, Jason Orban, when we return. Team Staff.
Snap's awesome. I have five teams on Team Snap. There are no questions asked by the players, the parents. Very easy to use. Very, very, very easy. Simple to use. Everyone, you know, everything's right there. Messages, availability, boom, boom, boom. I've looked at other at other things, and I think Team Snap sets the bar for this type of team management software. It's the best that I found. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by Team Snap. Spending more time with the great members of our current 30 under 30 class. We met them at the last convention in Baltimore. Hopefully, they're out there talking to their mentors and enjoying the experience. We're pleased to be joined by another one of their members, Jason Orban, who is entering his second season as the assistant coach for St. Francis College Brooklyn Men's Soccer Program. Jason. Welcome to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Dean. Appreciate it. I know you played at Stony Brook. You were a goalkeeper. I'm a big fan of Stony Brook because they're good in a lot of sports. They've got incredible lacrosse programs there, as you know, and men and women, and it's a great university. But before Stony Brook ever happened, tell us where you grew up, your love for soccer, maybe some other sports you played, your mom and dad, your family. Tell us a little bit about you. I grew up on eastern Long Island in a small town called Matterville. I was fortunate because my brother, Jeff, was four years older than me. He was an athlete. My father was an athlete. My father was actually one of the first freshmen to play varsity at William Floyd High School. So my father got involved with coaching, and we got pretty involved in Manigal Soccer Club. My mother helped out with the board. My father obviously coached my brother and I, so started out there. It was nice because you're obviously in a new town. You're playing with your friends. And as I progressively got older... The one benefit of having your dad as a coach is when someone doesn't show up to play, you tend to fill in every position. So I was fortunate to play at a young age in a lot of different positions, kind of always in a position where I had to get comfortable on the field pretty quickly. And that's eventually actually how I ended up going into the goal. One day our goalkeeper didn't show up, and the one position I never wanted to play was in goal. But being the coach's son, I had these short sticks, so I played in goal. Next week the goalkeeper didn't show up again, so I was back in goal, and we said, all right, well, if this is going to be what it is, then might as well get some training. I started getting individual training. I started attending uh, Ray Reed summer camps, actually, out of Center Riches, where I had a great goalkeeper coach, Coach Z. But that's where I really fell in love with the position at about age 14. And from there, when I was in Manville, I tried out for the Eastern New York South ODP, which was a cool experience because I was really the only one that was there that wasn't from a big club. Ended up making that and progressed through to the regional teams. We won a regional tournament there, went and became national finalist in the 2010 USU Soccer ODP Championship and eventually progressed to go through Comac United where I played the U.S. National League in its inaugural years and I ended up going to Hartford actually for my first semester before my program in education was cut. So I transferred back home to Stony Brook University and that was the best decision I ever made because Stony Brook, they were coming off recently winning conference title under Ryan Anatol in his first few years. We had just gotten Sean Hilbrin as an athletic director who's gone on to do, to do incredible things. It was really just a, an honor to kind of represent Long Island where I grew up for Stony Brook. And I'm an incredibly proud alum. I love every moment being there. And, yeah, that's kind of my story and plan. There's something about Stony Brook where, yeah, it's a small little name, a small little school, but at the D1 level, there's some power there, right? Absolutely. And I'll tell you, five years or so removed from, from college, and I still know that Stony Brook and its staff take the lead from Sean Hilburn, who's the AD. And he has been such a force for positive change. When I graduated, I remember him being on the sidelines at almost every game. He took the time to learn the student-athlete's names. 
he took the time to support. And when I graduated, I actually became an academic advisor in athletics. And his commitment to building that holistic model and supporting the student-athletes, it's, it's like nothing I've ever seen. And I still follow him on, on Twitter and his messages you know, during coronavirus, during the time we find ourselves in with conversations around racism and equality, he constantly takes the lead. So you see his coaches, his his program is really a reflection of him, and he's just an incredible leader. And you liked it so much that you got not one but two degrees. You also got your bachelor's <laughs> from Stony Brook, right? Yes, absolutely. So I was I was fortunate. I actually graduated with my bachelor's in three because of stuff I did in high school. So my fourth year in college, I did my master's. And I actually was a redshirt, so I had two more years to play. So what I ended up doing was I was a full-time master's student taking 12 credits, playing my final season, and that's actually when I started coaching as well because I, I got my first license when I was 18. I knew I wanted to be a coach. I was working, getting my coaching experience, doing my master's and playing all in my final year that fall of 2015. Before we find out your path to where you are now as the assistant coach, I want to go back to this notion of seeing every position because my fear is maybe this is a little bit before your time. I hope not. But down the road from Long Island in Kearney, New Jersey, which is known as Stockton Town, USA, Tony Miola was a multi-sport star. He was drafted by the Yankees, went on to be the goalkeeper in 90 and 94, made another World Cup team. But he also, his senior year in high school, he played forward, scored a bucket of goals so he could do it all. And so when I was hearing your story about playing everywhere, it reminded me, a little bit of Tony Miola. Did you even know who Tony Miola was when you were playing? Oh, yes, of course. Of course I knew who Tony Miola was. I have a decent enough understanding of the goalkeeper history and what Tony Miola was. And actually, Tony Miola is just one, but then you also have Hope Solo, who was also a forward, I believe, in school. I don't remember if she played at Washington or where she was, but she was also a forward in college, I believe, as well. So goalkeepers tend to have this thing where they like uh, they like being forwards before they get back into the goal. Yeah, Jorge Campos comes to mind as well, the great Mexican who was a legit forward. He could, you know, actually be in goal and then put on a uniform and move up front for the Mexican full national team. Yep. Uh, those are the best goalkeepers, right? The ones that can handle the ball at their feet, right? Well, obviously that's the way it's progressed now. I think what's more important when I think about that experience and what was great about having my father as my coach is he grew up playing in the 70s when Total Football came about. And he tells the stories about how, you know, you see some of the stuff from the Dutch team under Rena Schmeichels and then obviously progressed to Cruyff. What you learn more than just the technique is the understanding of the game. And it, it enhances your ability to communicate because you can have empathy for what every position's going through on the field, right? So not only is it understanding the tactic and the technique, but you, you know the feeling a little bit more. And I think that's something that even now in my coaching career, giving empathy to the players on the field through what sort of communication you give, that's a big part of that experience, you know, having played it around the field and continuing to do so. I actually, now when I play pickup, I never go on the goal, actually. I always continue to play on the field just to kind of get it out of me. Well, you mentioned your coaching career. Break down every step along the way, and then as you do that, Tell us why it was important for you to be part of this 30 under 30 class. So I started coaching actually when I was probably 12 years old, working in the intramural, working in the intramural program and continued to work through the junior uh, around Rough Rider program when I was like 16 or 17. And like I said, for my 18th birthday, you know, what I wanted was to go get my coaching licenses, which was the E-license back then, and I did it up in Albany. 
And I think for me, I like the idea of coaching more than playing because there's that side of the game where you get to build relationships between players, where you get to communicate and transfer ideas. And that's always part of the game that I love the most. I love playing, but the, the idea of coaching and bringing people together is what really kind of started me on that journey. So I got my license before my freshman year of college. I went on it through what was the NSCAA national license. And so when I was coming up to my senior year, I decided that it was time to kind of start. And I was fortunate because my old goalkeeper coach, Taylor Sainz, who's now at uh, Army West Point, he left for Cincinnati, but he kind of connected me with Stony Brook Soccer Club, which was right on campus at Stony Brook University to take over some of the goalkeeping. So I started to get involved in there, and I developed a good relationship with the technical director, Mark Nash, who really wanted to build a program, who really wanted to focus on what was going on from ages 3 through 12. It was what I wanted to do. I wanted to get involved in helping as soon as I got out of school. So I got involved with there. I took over a boys 06 team and a girls 01 team. And my boys 06 team, Porto, they were an incredible group of kids, an incredible group of parents. And it was my first experience as a coach. And the kids had so much energy that I felt like I could transfer the things that I loved about the game in terms of passion, in terms of energy, in terms of commitment and the work ethic to them. And that was incredible. I mean, I learned more from those kids than I think they probably got from me at the time, but it was what, it showed me what the power of relationship building as a coach brings you. So from there, I went on and I, I created a program called the Travel Development Program, which was a step up from ages, I guess, 9 to 12 before you hit the full field. And what it was was to connect the intramural development program that I was also running to the travel program. And what we did is we tried to get all the coaches on board by sharing sessions, but also sharing experiences to make sure that the kids progress in an appropriate way to the full Lebanese field. From there, I got a job at uh, St. Joseph's College, which was a local college right in Pasog, Long Island, through the head coach, Alex Mendolia, who is now a very good friend of mine. And we took this program, it was a Division three program, but we wanted to run it like a fully funded Division one program. So we didn't have any athletic scholarship. We had to bring in kids with high grades. There were no dorms. It was a private school with high tuition. So it was a really first interesting experience in college soccer because you really had to be creative in how you managed the program and how you got the most out of players. And we kind of embarked on this recruiting idea to, to make sure that we were looking for kids that were intelligent but were really committed to the growing process and wanted to be part of building something. It was a complete culture switch, but within our first year, we brought the team to the Skyline Conference Finals. And through Alex, I eventually met Sue Ryan, who was Alex's mentor at Stony Brook, who has gone on to become, you know, an incredible, incredible mentor for me and, and helped me get into 30 under 30, but also work with Eastern Region uh, Girls ODP. So from there, I became the head coach of St. Joseph's when Alex left for Spain. I got my first head coaching job at 23, which was another great experience because now I'm working with players that are right about the same age as me. So again, that relationship building component kind of comes into it. And in that season, we went on and we broke, I think, an eight-year record for goals per game in the regular season, goal scored in a season. We tied, I think, the best win percentage since 2012. So we had a really great experience. And from there, personal uh, life choices brought me to Brooklyn, where now I'm working with uh, Coach Tom Giovato and uh, our other assistant, Andy Cormack. And they are two of the most incredible people you can meet because they're guys that welcome you in. When they see that you're committed to the program, 
and wanting to build things, they welcomed me in. Tom has played a huge role in me getting into 30 and for 30, along with Sue. So I learned about the 30 on the 30 program through Sue, who pushed it as an opportunity to get involved in network, but also connect with people who thought like me in terms of wanting to make sure players had a positive experience. That kind of brought me to the program, and it really has been an incredibly positive experience, not just because of the other coaches and mentors that I've met, but because of the stories that I got to hear from the other 30 under 30 candidates. They work in such a diverse, I guess, range of youth soccer and what they do, and they all have their personal experience of why they work where they work. So it's just been a really fulfilling program. It opened the door for me to actually feature on match day still with a project I'm working on with my partner, Alex. So, you know, it's been a quick journey in a short amount of time, but I've had a ton of great experiences because of the people that I've met. That's a great breakdown, Jason Orban. And anytime you can sue Ryan, it brings a smile to my face. Every time <laughs> I see her, she's so positive indeed. Yes. Well, you already touched on it since you were on that webinar. What is this product? You can go ahead and plug it here on the podcast. Yeah, so um, Alex, who is, again, the coach Sanchez with me, we've stayed connected. The thing about him is we like to sit down over a coffee and just talk about the game. And so one of the reflections that we had on the East Region ODP Hershey camp was we said we wanted to introduce visual learning aids because we have such a huge pool of players, right? And and you really, in such a short amount of time, if you're only doing experiential learning on the field, the players that are more in tune to the language, that are more in tune to the playing ideas, who come from similar uh, playing backgrounds in their clubs, tend to adapt quicker and acquire the knowledge a little bit sooner, and therefore they tend to make the teams. So what we wanted to do at Hershey was introduce visual aids. So Alex... You know, through his video and he uses a drone that I have for, for the college, we started to video clip the training sessions, and then we brought players into this session where, through project-based learning, we have them get together in groups and essentially say, okay, here's what we worked on, here's what we wanted to try to achieve, you know, can you find where this broke down and almost coach us so that we could see where your thought process is. It was a great success. We got the girls clicking pretty quickly before their international trip. So Alex and I, over coffee, thought about bringing this idea of introducing visual learning aids into the, the ODP camp, because camp is five days, well, it's really three full days. With so many pool games, you have close to 100 players, and we wanted to say, we really want every kid to have an experience where they felt like the coaches cared about their learning style, and that we took care in actually educating the curriculum. So what we said to the coaches and our idea was, let's take these, the curriculum from every age group, whether it be building out of the back, the different types of pressing, the different, you know, everything about the system, and let's try to create visual uh, examples of what that looks like so that, A, we can hand that to the coaches and they have a clearer idea of what they're looking for from the head coach's perspective when building training sessions. But, B, what we can do is we can take those players who may be the only one there from their state, who may not have a social network while at camp, which is a very lonely experience, and we can introduce this sensory learning where they're, they're in small groups working with their fellow teammates, where they're getting the visual aids, where they're getting the animation, and they're seeing what the situations might look like, even though the game obviously evolves on the field, but they're starting to get context to the game, context to the curriculum that we're trying to teach. So that when they go on the field, they have some idea of what it might look like so that it influences their decision-making and perception. Unfortunately, we didn't get to do that because of COVID, but what we've done in the meantime is make it essentially a video curriculum that the coaches are now rolling out and we're we're meeting with players and we're showing them video from the Boca into regionals. 
and we're bringing them into this into this setting where they're almost analyzing their own games, and, and now we can hold them accountable for their learnings. It's been a really interesting project. We say we're in, you know, the 1.0 version of it and continuing to grow, but the feedback we've gotten has really helped. We're passionate about making this, you know, a real part of coaching education, but also player education, so that so it's not just on the field and the players feel like we're attentive to their learning needs. Another reason why you're part of the 30 under 30 final soundbite here for you because I was moved right off the bat by you talking about what an inspiration your dad was coaching you. I coached both my kids, loved every minute of it. As you reflect, knowing that you're a member of a 30 under 30, knowing that your assistant coach had a great program, knowing that you're doing this work now that you just talked about, what did your dad mean to you in your development? That's a great question. My father's biggest commitment to me was to accountability and to make sure that you do things that are right for a group. And like I said, that, that manifested itself in playing different positions. But my father, he believes in discipline. He believes in accountability. So while that's evolved in my own practice, that sticks with me. If I'm going to a camp and I know I'm only going to have five days with the kids and they're all new, I know that I'm going to commit and be accountable to them by going above and beyond and trying to make sure I, I can connect with each one of them, whatever that means. So it's not just showing up and running a training session, but taking the time to know about them, to make sure that I'm doing right by those people. And I think, you know, that's what I get from my dad, is, is that commitment to make sure you're, you're not just doing the job, but that you're really trying to make a difference. He was the guy that drove people all across the United States when they didn't have a ride from their parents. He was someone that committed 100%. And just as a short aside, there was a good six to eight weeks where he actually drove me two hours of state every Thursday to get training with a program because, you know, we thought it would benefit me. So it's just that sense of commitment and that sense of accountability to others that I that I kind of take into my practice today. Jason Orban, another interesting member, fantastic career already. It's only going to get better part of the 30 under 30 class. Jason, thanks for being on the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. Dean, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I want to thank Jason and all our great guests today, as well as Sean Chevrolet, Mike Knipper, and all the great folks at United Soccer Coaches. I'm Dean Linky. We'll see you next week for another United Soccer Coaches podcast.